and welcome to episode 17 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And this is a very unusual and special edition of Cultural Capital, as you realised, um, if you've downloaded this on the day we've uploaded it, it's January 1st, 2017, so we're going to be taking a look back at the films of 2016 and counting down, or in some cases, not necessarily counting down in any specific order, just mentioning our favourite films of the last year. But first up, we're going to be quickly looking at The Edge of Seventeen. Hey. Busy. I don't want to take up a ton of your time, but I'm going to kill myself. I just thought that an adult should know. Wow. I wish I knew what to say. You know, actually, I was writing my own suicide note just now. As some of you know, I have 32 fleeting minutes of happiness during lunch, which has been eaten up again and again by the same especially badly dressed student. And I finally thought I would rather have the dark nothingness. Have a nice life without me, fuckers. New dramedy The Edge of Seventeen is a directorial debut of screenwriter Kelly Fremont Craig. The film stars Hayley Steinfeld as a 17-year-old Nadine, who as the film starts tells her classroom teacher, played by Woody Harrelson, that she's going to kill herself. Nadine has a single friend at school and seems to be constantly annoyed by everybody around her, including her family. As the film gets going, it covers sex and death and life from a teenager's perspective. Andy, did it speak to you? It did. I thought this was a really, really strong film. Um, it isn't covering that newer ground, I suppose, but there is a way that, um, that both Hayley Steinfeld's performance and the uh, script, they really managed to capture it in a way that felt um, very authentic to me, even though it's been a while since I was a teenager and I've never been a teenage girl. It manages to have this sort of gritty realism about it that isn't done in a uh, British way. It doesn't really feel like it's the fairy tale way that most teen comedies or live movies about teenage girls have done, where they tend to immediately demark the territory of people in high school into jocks and nerds and punks and goths and all that sort of stuff for comic effect. It just feels very real. Like the, it's quite a complex environment. There's a lot of anxiety going on. There's a lot of misunderstandings. There's a lot of texting. The whole thing kind of pushes towards this emotional apex fairly early in the film when Hallie Steinfeld's character Nadine's best friend falls for her brother. And this pushes a lot of stuff to the fore and it kind of makes her feel alone for the first time. Uh, and that was done in, in this amazing way. I mean, the camera pretty much almost never leaves her face, and which is probably a good move when Hayley Steinfeld you know, is on the form that she is at the moment. I feel like she's going to be a really huge actor for the next few decades at least. What did you make of it, Eloise? I'm not sure about this movie. I think that what it is trying to do, it does really, really well, and it is going to find an audience. And I do think that it's great as a teen movie and will speak to a lot of people. But I feel like that there is an inherent problem because basically this is a quite authentic, as you say, representation of uh, teenagerhood um, and especially late teenagerhood when you're starting to get more independence um, and it basically the plot and um, is is about Haley Steinfeld's character and she is a, a terror basically she's really selfish she's self-involved she is kind of depressed and lonely um, she obviously has needs and desires but she also um, manages to completely uh, kind of yeah just just get blindsided and not pay attention to anyone else's needs or desires. Uh, and in that, she's kind of this really horrible person. She's only 17, so you know that she's going to grow, but she's basically a representation of a horrible teenager. And I think that that's really interesting, but just in terms of having to spend an entire film with, with her, 
is is not great. I got quite sick of her and I did come around, you know, I liked her at the beginning, but, but as a character, she's really annoying and self-involved and that's fine. That's what happens when you're a teenager. Um, and obviously all of these, you know, tiny problems become the, the world's worst problems and you're the only one that's ever had them. But that's kind of where I find that my problem with this movie is, is that it's presenting something that's very realistic. I just don't know if it's really great kind of viewing material. Mm, yeah see i didn't mind because I, I she did i did appreciate her being annoying but i could kind of put this distance between it going okay that's just how she's going to be for a while and she'd make these really kind of funny assertions like oh i'm really into old films and old art but there's never any evidence of her being interested beyond just saying the words i'm really in she thinks that's a cool thing to say to her teacher yeah i really loved woody Harrison. yeah he's, yeah um, he's very funny very dry um sometimes i think probably went a bit too far in in kind of trying to create this rapport with his student but it was it was very funny, and, and I really liked that relationship that they had on screen. Mm, yeah, I also think this is um, interesting in a because because it doesn't feel one hundred percent new. But I think one of the important things to note is that it was produced by James L. Brooks, who has been um, really really important for a lot of people who want to capture teenagerhood in a really interesting way. So he kind of shepherded the early careers of Cameron Crowe and Wes Anderson. They did really get that the complexities and authenticity of teenagerhood really mm, really well. Mm. I thought. Um, but yeah, I think I would definitely recommend this, even if you're not a teenage girl, I think there's enough here. It wasn't as funny as I was expecting, because it is kind of marketed yeah, as a comedy, okay. and there were a few good jokes, um, and some of those are in the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yes. The perpetual letdown of the dramedy. Yes. Um, the, yes. the kind of, her, her relationship with her brother did annoy me a little bit as well. It was, you know, sort of like that, everyone has problems, even people who appear perfect on the outside are not perfect, which is something that has been done, you know, to death in movies and will continue to be done. Like, it's not a useless message. It's very important. But I did feel like it was a little bit um, slamming us over the head with that at the at the end. <clears throat> but, the, but the final ending was quite sweet um, for, for Nadine's character. So overall, it was, it was a nice enough movie. Um, I just personally had that kind of just grating problem with, with the main character. Mm. Yeah, but anyway, it's it's good, going to be good for a certain audience, I think, definitely, in a good summer holiday movie. Yeah. So, Edge of Seventeen is out January 2nd. So, episode one of Cultural Capital came out in June with our review of Jodie Foster's film Money Monster, which may or may not feature in our top five films of 2016. So, obviously, being a fortnightly podcast that picks two or three films an episode, there's a lot that we miss out on. And so, even if you don't like lists or you think ranking is ridiculous, this is one of the rare occasions we get to single out films for extra attention and recommendations. Anders. How do you feel about list making? Well, I'm not opposed to this the way that some people are. Um, I think I think list making is very for talk for discussing film and uh, cultural products to a broad audience or to people who are not immersed in the film world. I think lists are a very useful way of packaging up insights and films uh, for, for, for that kind of audience. I guess many problems arise and they're very legitimate problems, I think, um, about, you know, the nature of who composes lists and the, you know, oftentimes we omit certain filmmakers and certain films from lists because the people who are writing them are speaking from a place of great authority when, in fact, they haven't seen every movie that's ever been made in a year because you can't. So, look, it's not a, an unqualified endorsement of list making but I think the thing I love about lists is that 
some critics use them really well to talk about the year and culture and that kind of stuff in a really interesting way. So I think if a list is a scaffolding for a bigger sort of, you know, to, to belabor this metaphor, a, a building of insight, then um, yes, I'm all for the list. But if you just have the scaffolding and the building is unmade, unconstructed, then I don't really see the point in it. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think that definitely contextualising and giving history, um, you know, a meaning to lists is important. In the same way that being a film critic or offering a film review um, needs to kind of exist within uh, a larger framework of what's going on in the world, what else is happening right now and why this film is made or, or what was happening when the film was made and, and what other films, you know, this kind of operates within. So in that, that same way, you know, in reviewing films and giving your opinion on films, you can't just do it without any, any further discussion. So um, list making is difficult for me, mostly because, I don't know, I just never really thought about it and it's really hard to make decisions and what if I've got 30 films that I really love Mm -hmm. and can't cull any of them into some sort of top five or top ten. Um, I did write a top ten list for the Sense of Cinema World poll. In addition to my five that you hear me talk about today, you'll, you'll see some others in that list. But I don't generally make lists. Just one quick reservation I have about lists is we get sort of caught up in this idea of recent the recent past being the only thing that matters. And so you're only talking about films that have come out in the last 12 months as if these are the only films that are worth talking about. And it's interesting when you look back on your list from a couple of years ago and you go, oh, what stood the test of time? What hasn't? And probably, uh, in my case anyway, the what hasn't greatly outnumbers the what has. Mm. So um, first uh, I'll introduce our special guest, Ben Rigby, for his top five films of 2016. Yeah, I, look, it was a toss-up between I, Daniel Blake and American Honey. I think that Andrea Arnold is a really, really special director. I love the way she deals with metaphor through, like, animals. But Ken Loach, I think, just deserved it with what happened this year in particular, like Brexit, Trump. It, the, the, the difference between them was one's Trump's America and one, one is modern Britain, the, Britain the, the, the parts of these countries that we don't really see and we don't, they're, they're not enjoyable to see, but um, I always get off on really depressing cinema. So, you know, and, and also being a, a, a person who's been on welfare before and how it helped me so much through university, and then it reaches a point where, like, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm privileged enough to live in a place where I can call myself an actor and, you know, I can, I can be so lucky that I can be an artist somewhere, but, you know, there's people out there who actually have real problems and when it, when it really gets to the crunch and they need assistance, there's so many walls and things implemented to stop them from getting what they actually need. And in, in a country like Britain, which we see as so progressive, I guess, <laughs> maybe not anymore, um, so progressive and forward and, and pretty wealthy, um, it's, it's kind of shocking. But if a film with that, that kind of text makes you, you know, cry for a character, it's obviously doing something right and changing the way that you think about the world that we live in. Um, so personally, just following on from what we were saying earlier, I love lists and I agonise over every single slot that I give to a film and spend far too long on chat forums that are populated by film nerds to get a, hopefully get a better appreciation and understand um, an understanding of films and lists are something that they tend to um, agonise over similarly. 
So I quite like the way you can be as serious or as flippant as you want, like about them, because you can't take them, you know, as seriously and as stupidly as I do. But at the same time, I know it's just so dumb to think that you can rank art. So this year I saw 72 eligible films, so there are obviously quite a lot that I missed out on. I haven't seen Childhood of a Leader or The Fits, and I'm yet to make it to Hunt for the Wilder People, even though that's entering its like 20th something week at Cinema Nova, I think. <laughs> it's a bit embarrassing. And all of those could quite possibly have made the list. So with that aside, my number five is a film that I think that a lot of people saw when it was released this year in March. It's the highest rated film of the year on Rotten Tomatoes, and it's only really grown more prescient as the year has progressed, and that film is Zootopia. Zootopia. A gleaming city where animals of all breeds, predator and prey alike, live together in peace and harmony. Hi, I'm Judy, your new neighbor. Yeah, well, we're loud. Don't expect us to apologize for it. ZPD's first rabbit officer, Judy Hopps. You ready to make the world a better place? So there are no shortage of films with beautifully rendered cartoon worlds populated by characters that provide witty commentary on pop culture. And Zootopia tells the story of an anthropomorphic rabbit called Judy Hopps who wants to be a police officer. And she has a friendship with a con artist, Fox, in, in the city of Zootopia, where this has never happened before. So the pair soon get drawn to this very noirish story of dif- disappearing predator animals and government corruption. And Zootopia explores racism, prejudice, discrimination, media responsibility, and interspecies tolerance in a way that feels almost subversive by the end of the year, which wow. is quite weird. Did either of you see this? Um, no, I and you've, you've definitely given me indications that it's one of your favourite films of the year. Mm. Uh, you've seen it twice, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's definitely been on my radar. I have not seen it, though. Oh. Highest ranking on Rotten Tomatoes. It's yeah, very it is. fascinating. It is, because... there's something about... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really... Um, it couldn't. They could never have known because they spent years and years working on this film, and it's just become this really quite profound story now. Even though it's you know very very cute and it's you know pretty funny, and there's all sorts of gags going on um, in the backgrounds of scenes as well. But it's also just got this great yeah the, the noir story at the centre is really interesting. Like so many films tend to take nods to classics like Chinatown in Rango and stuff like that, mm. but this really felt like it was something new and different. Cool, definitely recommended. Uh, well, my number five film is Embrace of the Serpent, um, Colombian filmmaker Chiro Guerra's film. I thought this was a stunningly crafted and quite emotionally moving exploration of the impact of colonialism. It's sort of a road movie that uses the Amazon River as its highway, shot for the vast majority of its running time in black and white, and structured around two uh, separate stories. So each story follows the Amazonian protagonist, Karen Makate, as he travels with two Western scientists along the same stretch of river 30 years apart. And I think that sort of decision to juxtapose two stories is really clever, both based on separate European scientists' diaries. So it's sort of like an adaptation in a weird way, which is very interesting. Yeah, so this creative decision allows us to sort of see the devastating impact the early 20th century had on this part of the world. And particularly resonant for me uh, was his depiction of the inhabitants of a Spanish Catholic mission. Mm. Um, And we sort of see them in the first story, Uh, it's sort of this established mission with the local priests looking after kids and stuff and then in the second story everyone there's gone sort of completely mad in a very sort of Apocalypse Now style (laughs) uh, frenzy of violence and and craziness um, out in the middle of the wilderness but yeah wonderful wonderful beguiling film really really sort of stayed with me in a way that few other new releases have I just watched that recently as well and I totally agree Mm -hmm. It's, it's a stunning really unusual film she seems to have a huge reverence for um, for the subject as well, which I thought came across in a really interesting way. It really took its time without ever being slow. 
Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. My number five of the year is Whit Stillman's Love and Friendship. Sir James, allow me to introduce my sister-in-law, Mrs. Catherine Vernon, and her brother, Mr. Reginald de Courcy. How do you do? How do you do? Kind of you to ask. Uh, excellent. Truly, very well. Thank you. Uh, excuse my hurry in coming, <laughs> the lack of notice beforehand, etc., etc. Truth is, I forgot to write. Then it was too late. Uh, now I'm here. An impressive establishment you have here, sir. My congratulations. Immaculate. Mr. Corsi is Mrs. Vernon's brother. Very good. It's her husband, Charles Vernon, who has Churchill. Churchill? That's how you say it. All together like that. Churchill! <laughs> oh, well, that explains a lot. You see, I'd heard church and hill, but couldn't find either. All I could see was this big house. <laughs> Fine name, Churchill. Love and Friendship, an adaptation of Jane Austen's posthumously published novella called Lady Susan, which she probably wrote in the late 1890s, I think, or mid-1890s, um, but was not published until after her death, uh, probably because it was maybe unfinished or she wasn't. She wrote it quite early as a teen, I think, and so wanted to refine her work later on. So this film follows Mrs. Alicia Johnson, played by Chloe Sevigny, and Lady Susan Vernon, played by Kate Beckinsale. Um, who, uh, who are kind of people who have absolute contempt for uptight society and the establishment and see things in a much more kind of free, open fashion than, than a lot of the society around them. Um, I think this is really a, such a, a wonderful film and Kate Beckinsale is the lead character, I should say. Um, Chloe Sevigny plays her, her friend, I suppose, and confidant. Um, but... Kate Beckinsale's performance is excellent, and I really, truly think she deserves an Oscar nomination for Best mm, Actress. Same. But yeah. I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm um, kind of paying vague attention to the to the chats. I don't think it's going to. But she absolutely deserves it. She's just such an excellent um, comedian, and it's so great to see her kind of have the chance to to show off her skills after being in you know blockbusters for mm. so long, kind of having her talents. Uh, wasted I suppose but the reason that I love this film so much is that it's just such a perfect marriage between Whit Stillman's humour and Jane Austen's humour and she's just so funny and a lot of the people talking about this film have kind of been commenting on the fact that they didn't realise Jane Austen was so funny Hmm. and it's just something that I've always loved about her I mean even when she's not outrageously um, you know, laugh out loud funny. She's just got this wit about her that is, you know, it's such a sharp eye and attention paid to to society around her, which is just incredible. And the way that she kind of creates characters that are sometimes larger than life absolutely indicates that she has a very, you know, great sense of humour and just absolute um, charming ability to to be funny, basically. But like a lot of the a lot of this film is directly taken kind of from her novella and some of it has been scripted by by Stillman himself. Um, anyway. It, it seems like it. the perfect marriage of subject matter and filmmaker. It's so good. And also yeah. I just need to mention Tom Bennett who oh, plays yeah. <laughs> um, this, you know, stupid 
character but he's just so hilarious and perfect and I'd never cool. seen him as an actor in anything before and he's so great just hilarious I saw this film three times <laughs> um, <laughs> and just uh, very very funny really oh really yeah, yeah. It's, it's wonderful really really good and yeah, we reviewed cool. it a few episodes back uh, I think mm. you and I and, and one of our guest hosts we reviewed yes. it on an earlier mm. podcast so if you're interested you can check it out there yeah I definitely would second that as well and just to also point out that there's I think partly the reason that people were so surprised by this is because often people think about the bonnets or they think about the lovely shots of the horses and carriages, whereas which kind of pairs it back to being this focusing again and again on the, on the language. Yeah, and it's such a criticism of society and society's double standards, which is which is so great. Um, I actually interviewed Whit Stillman as well in an issue of Senses of Cinema earlier this year, so if you're listening and you want to check that out, then, then go ahead, it's online. <laughs> Excellent. One number four is Julieta, which is by uh, Pedro Almodovar, which is a film we reviewed on the podcast also. So like a lot of uh, cinephiles, I've been a massive fan of Almodovar for a long time, but um, his last film, I'm so excited, made it seem as though he was kind of making films more for campy entertainment. Not that there's anything wrong with campy entertainment, but I felt like it was very shallow and not really exploring the skills that I'd seen him use so effectively before. Um, but he's back now um, probing the emotional lives of older women with amazing results. So this is his 20th film, and he's also... Uh, 20th. Wow. feature, yeah. yeah. It's just beautiful to see him back in, in complete control of this story, or in the case, uh, this three Alice Munro stories, short stories that he's edited together. Um, and it's full of, like, surprising turns in telling its story about uh, the relationship between a mother and a daughter who have been separated for a long period of time. I thought what was so remarkable was this marriage of style and content. So he obviously venerates these women and their personal experiences, and he's got huge, such a huge artistic skill set of his own, and also he assembles people around him, um, such as the composers and uh, the cinematographers, that just work so beautifully. Juliet is like emotional journey through guilt and love and her growing understanding about her daughter and herself. It, he's, he seems to be able to take on this almost chameleonic style so that the colours and the shapes and the uh, textures seem to like move really, really differently between the various scenes and various time frames. As we said in the show, there's some amazing acting on um, on display from Emma Suarez and Adriana Ugarte, who is the older and younger Julieta. And even though he doesn't go for the heart-wrenching power of like some of All About My Mother or the histrionic heights of some of his earlier work, like Time Me Up and Time Me Down, this is still just really, I thought it was really very powerful and consistent. I loved it. This, this didn't make my top ten list, but I absolutely adored it. I remember just totally loving it at the time and definitely on our podcast review and you're right the the dual performance between the two women who play the, the same character I basically couldn't tell them apart mm. almost in some scenes they just they just were so excellent at yeah. embodying the same character mm. and can I just give a quick shout out to the main guy because he's so hot he's the hottest <laughs> dude in a movie this that I saw this year oh, we should have top five of that yeah, we, Plus dudes in there's some competition but what no, about yeah. what about Oh, okay, I need to get outraged. The guy from Whiplash, Jake. What about J.K. Simmons? He's really oh, yes. hot. No, he anyway, is. Anyway, yeah. that's all. That's my little introduction. <laughs> <Shout> <laughs> he will be. I will be shouting him his name now. Hot guys in movies podcast. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> um, so sorry. Yeah, let's just, you're just finally Julia hasn't even been released in US yet. I think it's coming out there next week. So oh. we'll probably be getting lots about it, hearing a little more about it soon. And it's one of the finalists for the Foreign Film Oscar list as well. Great. So Great. maybe we'll it'll do even better. Cool. 
So my number four uh, is a film I've talked about a couple of times on this podcast, La Tessa, The Weight, uh, from Italian director Piero Messina. It sort of came and went from Australian cinemas in the space of about a week, but it's jam-packed with many curiosities, all of which sort of overlap to form a quite enigmatic whole. The film has a very sort of elegant premise. A girl moves in with the mother of her boyfriend and she doesn't know that her boyfriend is dead. That's essentially uh, the premise of the film. I guess how willing you are to go along with this conceit will uh, determine to a large extent your enjoyment of this film because there are a few moments where it's like, come on, surely by now you must realise that your boyfriend uh, is dead. However, I think there's a lot to love about this film. It's told in a visually quite beautiful way. Lots of, you know, lovely shots of Juliette Binoche's illuminated grief face surrounded by darkness while she's on the phone. Um... The sort of floating pink lilo in a few scenes around the dilapidated house. And oddly, Piero Messina seems to have set this film in the very recent past. So characters have block phones and they're sort of those, you know, bright, colourful iMac computers in in a couple of rooms. So it's like this odd, disjointed film sort of set set in, a, in an unknowable kind of place at an unknowable time. I want to give two brief shout-outs to the opening credits, which are very sort of tonally and visually distinct from the rest of the film. Um, they sort of track across an airport. Uh, you see silhouetted figures on a travelator all set to a song by the XX. And then there's a knockout dance scene set to Leonard Cohen waiting for the miracle. And both of those scenes I thought were standout sequences from films that I've seen this year. Yeah, I want to support you on that. Those two scenes, I did like that movie a lot. It did kind of slip out of my memory though, because I didn't latch onto it, I guess, as strongly yeah. as you. But those two scenes... Uh, are incredible just really very well done and kind of hold holding the tone of the of the film really interestingly Mm. And I think, I mean, what more do you want from a film than two standout scenes? I mean, a lot of movies won't give you that. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Eloise, what's what's next for you? So, my next film in my favourite films of 2016 list is The Fitz, Anna Rose Holman's debut feature fiction film. So, this is a film kind of about an 11 year old girl a tomboy named tony living in cincinnati and so she's on the boxing team with her older brother um and then there's this incredible moment where she just kind of glimpses or or goes and kind of seeks out to look at this girl's dance team it's drill dance it's this particular style of dance you know amongst school-aged children in the united states and so she's looking kind of longingly at these girls and even though she is kind of on side with her brother you you see her decide that she wants to become a dancer and so it's this incredible journey of this 11 year old girl who is very talented and really excellent at boxing and really fit um, and really determined but you just kind of see her struggling to be a dancer and trying to coordinate herself and and failing um, and feeling kind of uncomfortable and then it's you know if you're not familiar with the premise of the film it's about her experience and her trying to fit in amongst her 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 friends I suppose or her her peers and then this very strange virus type of thing starts to to come over and and affect the girls in the team if some people get the fits basically they they start fitting on the floor and have to be taken to hospital and it's like this 24-hour bug kind of thing and then they come back some people see it as as a metaphor for menstruation and moving into girlhood and and teenagehood but but i really feel like it's just really interestingly is has another kind of meaning of just just simply trying to fit in and and 
whether or not you know kind of exploring how a young girl can move forth in the world obviously the plot is really special um and the, the performance by royalty hightower the, who plays yeah. this 11 year old girl is is excellent it was her first acting performance as well and she's actually a trained dancer a very good one so she was acting very well and and being really in control of her body in those scenes where she couldn't dance but it's excellent the cinematography is is so great so beautiful there's a lot of close-ups a lot of stuff you know framing her body um, moving and framing other people's bodies moving in in the ways that they're you know professionally trained to do and the the music and the sound design as well is mm. just incredible. So the score here, and I want to uh, mention it particularly, is written by a pair, Danny Bensey and Sonda Jurians, who have written, I don't know how many scores this, this for, for feature films this year, maybe 11 or 12 or something. When I was at Sundance, wow. they, there were four films there that they'd written the scores for, um, and they're just excellent. Their score for this is incredible and just really gets into, you know, I mentioned the body before and how the camera really focuses on the body, and they, they just get into that kind of experience of, of living and, and doing things throughout the day, and it's really great rhythmically as well, so... So, yeah, anyway, very powerful film. Yeah, I, I love that film. It's on my um, long list, my top ten list. Um, and I just want to mention, too, I think there's something interesting and political about this film, too. It's set in, like, this predominantly African-American community in a sort of a, a, a community centre that seems very s sealed off from the outside mm. world, uh, at least the way this, it's filmed, the way it's shot. Um, most of it's set in, within the confines of this um, community centre and the authorities sort of don't really do much in the way of, you know, they they come in and they sort of have a whole class meeting and then they tell people, I think, oh, don't drink the water and that's... That, no one... They don't respond to this incident of the fits uh, I don't know in if a particular way. It's necessarily political, though. I just feel like it's, it's a film that is... You know, Anna Rose Holmer has has chosen to make this film about the experience of being a child and from the perspective of being a child, and that's what I found so like I really loved that there were all, there was almost no adult yep. interference or, or perspective in the film. That's yep. what I felt was really important about it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. No, I I totally roof that. I'm, I I don't know. It's just. It's an interesting case study in one community appearing on screen, I guess, that, yeah, that you don't often see in yeah. film, really, that we get over here anyway, yeah. Yeah, which is why it's such a great film. Yeah. Yeah. Morning, Donnie. Everything okay? No, not really. My kid needs braces on her teeth. My car needs a transmission job. My wife wants me to take her to Florida, but I'm behind on the mortgage payments. My uncle called from India and he needs money for my niece's wedding, and I got this strange rash on my back. How about you? I'm okay. Ready to roll, Patterson? Yeah. So, disclaimer, I normally, I really don't like best of year lists. I don't like ranking films because I feel really uncomfortable about the idea of ranking art. But I do generally often come out of a year with a film that I liked more than others, or at least I come back to a lot. And for this year, um, my favourite film of the year is Patterson, which is Jim Jarmusch's film starring Adam Driver as a poet bus driver with Golshifta Faharani as his partner, Laura, and they have an irascible dog called Marvin. And it's just, 
it's such a beautiful small film. It's a small film about small things and everyday life and I think lives that don't normally get put on screen because they're not viewed as interesting. You know, working class lives in particular are generally not considered interesting on film unless we're glorying in how terrible working class lives are. And as someone from a working class background, I think that shit house. Um, and I just feel like this is a beautiful small film filled with really amazing performances like Adam Driver and Shifter Faharani are two of my favourite actors anyway. Having them in a film together is just beautiful. Their relationship is, you know, very giving, very to and fro, um, but very loving as well. Like you don't see them fight, you don't see them argue, you just see them comfortably existing together. I enjoy the dog. I do love a film with a dog. <laughs> but it's just it's just one of those things where you kind of I I was when I first heard this film was announced, I kind of jokingly said to a lot of friends, Oh look, Jim Jarmusch has made a movie just for me. And at the close of the credits when I saw it, I just kind of sat there and went, Oh, he he really did make that for me. So I think that's a film that I'm always gonna come back to. And that was Haley Inch with her favourite film of the year, Patterson. Um, my number three is a film that we reviewed in a very early episode of Cultural Capital, Mustang. And while I was hoping from feedback for that episode to be people thanking us for putting them on to such a great film, the main response I got was, who puts a 30-second trailer for a film in Turkish on a podcast? Which is a very good question, and the answer is me. Mustang is a French-Turkish co-production that tells the story of five sisters who play innocently with some boys on a beach and are then imprisoned inside their family home as a result where they are married off. It's been cited as an inspiring feminist call to arms, and part of the power is definitely telling the straightforward story of how one of the girls, Lale, escapes the oppression from home and the power of hope that education offers. But I think it's much richer and more complex than that. Um, it's another first-time director, Denise Gamze Ergeven, who gets phenomenal performances from the cast and even makes the oppressor sympathetic at times, I think, as well. So she doesn't really opt for the easy answer of just blaming society for the problems as well. The force that's oppressing the girls is never really singled out as just religion or just patriarchy or just tradition. And it's kind of, a, it feels to me like a lot more than just one plucky girl's will against outdated tradition. The film spends a lot of time looking at the interactions between the sisters. Um, and that, so it doesn't, it doesn't really as depressing as it sounds or as bleak. But I found it overall it was a really optimistic film and I'm really glad that it got singled out for attention internationally as well at awards shows. Was that one you guys enjoyed too? Yeah, I really loved totally. it. I there was <clears throat> I can't remember exactly what it was. It was very powerful, and the, that performance by Lale, or the actress who played Lale, is is really key to the to the whole film. There was something about it that get, um, gave me reservations. I can't remember exactly mm. what it was. Well, maybe the score was pretty. Mm, yeah, <laughs> the, the score kind of annoyed me a little. Some Warren Ellis. Uh, yeah, but there's Warren Ellis. They recycled some yeah. some pieces from his other from films, oh. other scores they'd written for other films. Um, and I think there was something else as well, but I, I did love it. I think it's a really important kind of a film perspective from, from that, um, you know, yeah, from, a, from the being a young girl in that part of the world. And also, yeah, just getting a glimpse into that sort of society, which mm. is one of the most closed off of any, I think, in the world. It's really, that's well, part of what I love about films is just, just those little glimpses you get. Mm. Uh, so my third pick here is The Childhood of a Leader 
Brady Corbett's film. Um, I think for sheer blunt impact, you really can't go past this movie. Its striking score and breakaway finale really knocked me out. It's loosely based on a Jean-Paul Sartre short story and follows a tantrum-prone child and his interactions with his cold, distant family in a cold, distant house. And then the child goes on to become a fascist leader um, in the future. And this is, this is his childhood on screen. Most disturbingly, I think, given the current political climate in which we are all in, this movie ascribes a sort of sense of inevitability to the events it depicts. There's sort of a collision here of history, politics, and one man's damaged psychology, and it's sort of, it's unstoppable. It's, there's nothing you can really do about it. It's as if it's sort of fated to play out, this collision. Um, so that's, that's quite frightening. It's a frightening movie. It's not a, it's not a happy movie, but it really, really uh, impacted me. Directed by a 27-year-old Brady Corbett, which is quite remarkable, and I, I love, I'm dying to rewatch it. I, Someone told me it may be getting a release next year. I hope it does because it's, it demands to be seen in a cinema because the Scott Walker score is just really, it, it's sort of visceral, really visceral film. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the really key reasons I want to watch it. His scoring for Polar X and some other works he's done is mm. phenomenal. Yeah, cool. And just really, really assured, confident filmmaking, wonderful sort of directorial choices, camera choices, good acting. Like, yeah, it's just all guns blazing kind of stuff. Mm. But yeah, scary. Is, scary. It a, is it a hermetic? Does it take place just in the... Uh, the vast majority of it does, yes. Mm. And then there's a prologue and epilogue that are outside of it. Right. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. Yeah, it's cool. Great. So my number three, and this is a film that might move higher up on my list when I've had more a chance to think about it. Um, but I've put it at number three because I was just so, so stunned by it. And I know it's a film that we all maybe want to talk about so we can we can chat about it a little bit um now i maybe well i don't know this film will be released in australia on january 12th but it did get a release in uh the us in december and we've all seen it in december it's jackie people like to believe in fairy tales you ready of course and you I believe that the characters we read about on the page end up being more real than the men who stand beside us. So I want to mention Jackie Pablo Lorraine's film about Jackie Kennedy and the few days following the assassination of, of JFK and how she deals with her grief and how she handles the loss and the, the moments following and then the days following and the whole process, not only of losing a husband in such, losing a husband, losing a husband in such horrific circumstances and also having to deal with the fact that he was the president of the United States and she, I think at one point she says this really, you know, it's kind of, it's heartbreaking. It's obvious, but it's heartbreaking. She says, I'm, you know, I'm not the first lady anymore, but she still has to behave like a first lady in these, these official process of, of the funeral and accepting the death of, of the president. And it's a, a film that I wasn't really necessarily sold on going in, in even in the first kind of 20 minutes, I, I wasn't really fully into it. But, but the way that both well, Natalie Portman um, gives a really 
astounding performance as Jackie Kennedy. I think it's just really excellent. And I was kind of had reservations at the beginning because of her accent, but, but the accent is kind of such a strange one to have to grasp anyway. And so I, I got very um, on board with it as the film went on. And I do think that, that Natalie Portman was embodying her uh, mannerisms really well. But the, I just think that there are so many different ways, basically, that you could tell this film uh, about the week after JFK's death and the the way that Pablo Lorraine has chosen, and I think it was scripted by by Noah Oppenheim, and the, their work together is just stunning. And th- there are so many different ways to tell this story, and it's dealing with memory, and it's dealing with experience, and it's dealing with Catholicism, and it's dealing with the re- reporting, and it's dealing with I- like ideals of of patriotism and presidentialness, I suppose. And, and just that it includes all of that is, is really excellent. Uh, I think it's a really interesting, as a classic ode to a classic era, basically, one that is so mythologised in our culture. Um, and I think that the film kind of purports to further mythologise this period, but also deconstructs the mythologies of that time in the way that... that the whole idea of of memory and and grief is is presented. Yeah. Anyway, and the score by um, Mika Levy is is really excellent. Mika well. Levy. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, first... that's one of my least favorite things about it. Oh, the score. Yeah, it's okay. so intrusive and annoying. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it was there was so many so many dynamics in it. Yeah. Was, which I find you know quite just like oh man you just can't relax okay it's, it's, interesting which but I guess I, is good I, yeah. that's, I think that assisted the experience so. yeah because I love Michael yeah. Levy's other work but mm. in this case I was just like well it's just an orchestra detuning for a bit yeah, yeah. interesting okay <laughs> but um, no it is fascinating because like, I thought Portman was amazing in this film and yeah there was just the tr- control and the way that she's only really defined by her response to her environment constantly so you never get any backstory really it's just her like I need to do something now I need to stay in control and I need to yeah 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 so many and so many close-ups of her either you know yes. face or, yeah. or the back of her head or her walking or doing things mm. totally yeah I mean you could just watch it just for the you know, with the sound off just for the fashion and the and the the beautiful way mm-hmm. that they've de- decorated rooms and stuff as well mm-hmm. and the way that she is like so set on creating her own legacy that's what overwhelmingly I felt mm. like this was just all about the, the honoring the legacy of the, of the office you you're part of but also excluded from and on the outside of and also mm. needing to stay to keep it together for the kids and this sort of stuff so it was pretty much impossible to empathize with what she was going through so i really really appreciated the way that she was you know you could get an insight but i just also the, the film i found them really frustrating as well i mean actually it was first of all it was great to get an, a non-sorkin view of the Ameri- of what goes on in politics oh, yeah, totally. it's literally been totally. decades since anybody else has really got a, a look in i think that's true so it was wonderful to see it from the perspective of, of a woman involved in the white house but um, I just felt there was a little cold. Like, I really wanted to connect with her more, but I, was, could, I couldn't really empathise. I could appreciate the skill that was on show, but I was, just felt shut out by the whole thing. Okay, yeah. Um, but I can certainly appreciate, my God, there's so much talent on, on display and so many people got to express their talent really well. Mm. Mm. I, I think it's a really cool film. I, I, I'm not sure it's, it would 
Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm still processing it. But I, I ran into um, the film critic Philippa Hawker after we saw it and she made an observation, which I totally agree with, where she said she wasn't expecting it to be so dense. And it is a very dense film. And I, it, it circles back on like the same, you know, maybe four or five events or, or sequences again and again and again, or each time revealing something new of the mm-hmm. Jackie's experience of this. It is a sitting yeah, about totally a week. Right. About yeah. a week. But there's so much... Philip Walker is totally right. Uh, but yeah, there's just, it is. There's so much in that that very short period of narrative time mm. that I found really interesting. Constant overlapping and int- and weaving back um, as a film text. I'd, I'd, I mean, yeah, it, it totally would reward rewatching. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm desperate to rewatch it. Mm. But I do think that the way, you know, the way it's told, because it's kind of a, you know, it's not a chronological narrative and it does go back and, and kind of repeat things. And yeah. that's how, you know, if it was just a straightforward narrative, uh, you wouldn't have any of that. So no, so exactly. Really, yeah. really key. Mm. Anyway, yeah. that's coming out on January 12th. So everyone, including myself, hope <laughs> to see it again. <laughs> Um, and here's Jodie Mattia with her favourite film of 2016. I think this year's been a really great mo- year for movies, despite the usual calls of cinema being dead. And there's been a lot of films for me that have really lingered. And that's sort of been the key for me determining if I had to choose what my top films are, which ones they are. They're the ones that I still think about, even if I've only seen them once. But if I had to pick, I'm picking Tony Erdman as my favourite film of 2016. Um, it's the third third feature-length film from Marin Arde, um, who is a German film director, and it famously missed out on the Palm d'Or at this year's Cannes Film Festival, losing to I, Daniel Blake, which is a worthy contender, <laughs> and but also won the Fipresky Prize for Best Film in Competition, and is in the running now for the Best Foreign Film Oscar at the forthcoming Academy Awards. A simple description of the movie, I think, is interesting about how much it tells you about the movie, but also how little it tells you. So if I was to give you a simple description, it's basically about a relationship between a father and a daughter who are both quite unhappy for different reasons. The father wants to reconnect with his daughter much more than she necessarily wants to connect with him. His name is Winfried Conradi, and Ines is his only child, and he believes that she works too hard and has lost her sense of fun. So he goes about trying to re-establish a bond with her um, through a series of escalating practical jokes, and many of them that are performed by his alter ego, Tony Erdman. But this simple description belies, I think, all of the film's riches, of which there are a great many. You've probably heard Tony Erdman is a very funny film, and it is. And without giving away too much about it, there's a couple of scenes in this film that are among the most uniquely comedic scenes I've ever seen in any movie. And the element of surprise in this film is really strong. So it's um, really, I think, important if you've seen it, don't tell your friends about when these funny scenes are coming. I recently uh, saw the film for the second time, and the impact of the humour is slightly, only slightly diminished. I mean, they're still funny, and I still laughed probably amongst the loudest in the cinema but the element of surprise the fact that you don't know these things are about to happen is part of what makes them so special but Tony Erdman is not just a comedy it's also a very moving film for me personally um, for all of those laughs there's also a great gentility and sadness to it um, and I think that's ultimately because it's a deeply humanist film 
um, it's very empathetic, highly perceptive about human relationships and very smart and it takes its time to tell its story. So it is um, one of those movies you might hear people say when they walk out, oh that was that was long. Um, I think it's 162 minutes precisely from memory but there's not a wasted shot in this entire film and the payoff by the conclusion is pretty powerful. I love Tony Erdman also because it's a film that's full of ideas. You're entertained but you're also really provoked by this film and it's a film about family, it's a film about the spectre of death which is kind of hanging over it from beginning to end and that, that came out a lot more for me actually in my second experience with it. It's a film possibly also about depression, you know, two very unhappy people um, trying to find some sense of peace and ultimately it's a film about what it means to be human and there's a very key scene between father and daughter where he sort of asks her whether she actually is human and then sort of sets about trying to show her what it takes to be a good person. So the film is really, I think, about how to rehumanise relationships within an increasingly dehumanised world. Ines works in a um, in a corporation that basically outsource where they're outsourcing um, the job of sacking workers en masse and so there's this kind of sense that the corporation has become this kind of dehumanizing system that kind of crushes you and corrupts you um, and also there's the very specifics of her being a woman in that environment where she's um, she's taken seriously but also seems to be taken seriously more seriously in certain scenes when she's got a man beside her even if it's just her shambolic father so it's a movie about big questions, um, but it's also a very intimate film, I think, about um, very personal and private struggles. And it has a beautiful open ending um, that I think will linger with you. It certainly lingered with me, and I will definitely probably see it a third time. <laughs> And Tony Erdman, I think, is a film that we can all agree. <laughs> yes, I was lucky enough to go to a screening of it last week or a few weeks ago, and I'm very lucky to have seen it in this year. I love it. Yeah. I found it really, it was in my top 10 because it's so good at emotionally moving me and also making me laugh out loud, which very few films manage to do for me. So uh, on by that alone, I think it's really good and very clever in its, and, and perceptive in its exploration of the hyper bourgeois expat class in um, Bucharest. Like they yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really funny how mm -hmm. dumb all of these people are, these like, and scary, how these very powerful sort of idiotic corporate people are like he really he minds the humor in their their social milieu which i mm. really liked yeah. yeah coincidentally um like um, mustang my number three my number two is another film about a young woman responding with fierceness fierceness and creativity to the threat of an arranged marriage much like you have um interest in kids being sadistic when when they're being precocious i seem to have this 2016 obsession with girls being married off under young age <laughs> Um, so Sunita is a documentary about a 14-year-old girl called Sunita who's an Afghani rapper and an illegal immigrant living in Iran. Uh, the director, Roksar Gamagami, much like my favourite film of 2014, The Act of Killing, this feels like a documentary that almost rearranges what you know about documentary filmmaking. So she's kind of pulled into this story which, without really meaning to be by the plight of Sunita, whose family are very keen to marry her off for $9,000 to fund a dowry so that her older brother can marry into a wealthier family. 
But at the same time, she's uh, Sunita is pl loosely plugged into Western pop culture and is obsessed with Rihanna and rap. And so instead of rapping about bling and about sex and stuff like that, she's basically raps, writes these raps about the fear of being married off, the plight of being a young girl in such an oppressive society. I think this, well, barely anybody has actually seen this film, <laughs> but it's pretty much got five-star reviews um, everywhere it's, it's um, been reviewed. And it's up for a Golden Globe for Best Documentary as well. Mainly the whole film, I felt like, kind of hinges on this scene in, in which Roxara is, uh, Sunita is begging Roxara to buy her or to um, at least you know, give her a little more time of freedom before she has to go back to Afghanistan and then be married into this, this family. And the film was shot over five years and it ends up taking all these really unusual twists. Roxara's is, you know, camera is there to capture her, her face when she's you know, at school. She, she goes to a school, but she has to clean the school as well because she's not, you know, being illegal, she, could, she can't really afford to go there like everybody else. And there's a scene in which she has to recreate this, uh, her most horrific memory. Her teacher kind of asks these kids to do this and she recreates this scene using her classmates to about the time their family was stopped by the Taliban and it just becomes this harrowing experience. But then, you know, 10 minutes later, she's kind of busting these great moves and rapping with obvious skill. And also when she makes a music video, it's one of the most amazing music videos I've seen in years as well. Uh, so that's a film that, um, if you do get a chance to see it, I highly recommend. Cool. And that's Sunita. Uh, so my number two is Luca Guadagnino's A Bigger Splash, uh, which I think uh, I'm looking forward to a discussion about this film because I know it, some people don't like it. But anyway, I found it to be a complex elegy to the European rich and fabulous. It's positively overflowing with glamour, both on screen uh, in the form of, say, like the sunglasses that Tilda Swinton wears and off screen. The way he sort of captures all of this with his camera is quite remarkable. The way he sort of crash zooms across parties, um, that kind of stuff. Um, what I found particularly interesting about A Bigger Splash is that Guadagnino's not just lionising these fabulous displays of wealth and, and sort of decadent, liberal, uh, artistic living. Basically, he, he follows a group of um, fun-loving artists on an Italian island uh, as they're sort of summering there. And then Ray Fine shows up as this sort of hard partying ex-boyfriend of Tilda Swinton's character and sort of wreaks havoc and they sort of party and do drugs and drama ensues. But what I, yeah, so what I find really interesting is that there's sort of like quite a bitter undertone to all of this sort of fabulosity happening on screen. Uh, in the form of the European sort of refugee crisis of 2015, it begins, you sort of get glimpses of it through news broadcasts and things, but it's not really until the end of the film that it sort of explodes into the main storyline. And the film morphs then into quite a strong, I thought, critique of these characters. They're hypocrites, ultimately, and I think for coveting their lifestyles, we are too. <laughs> what did you people think? Did you, have you seen it? Yeah, I did. I saw this film twice at the cinema. I really oh, yeah. loved it a lot. Um, it is a bit silly and I didn't love it as much as I had anticipated that I would because I Am Love, Luca Guadagnino's earlier yes. film, is, is still one of my absolute favourites. And Yes, so I, I really got into the energy of this film. I loved the, you know, I loved the soundtrack. I loved the way that he used music with his, you know, cinematography and with the movements of the, the characters on screen and everything. Anyway, I just want to mention, I read this hilarious kind of ridiculous article in The Guardian and it was like films that have disappointed us in 2016. And one of them, I don't know who wrote it, but I just found it so ridiculous. It was like 
a bigger splash was disappointment because it introduced this idea of the refugee crisis but didn't focus on any of the refugees and just kind of used it superficially and I was like well that's ridiculous for one thing because it was never it was never what his goal was in the film well I mean maybe he was exploiting them by suggesting that these characters also were hypocrites about kind of you know about that whole idea but but anyway I just thought it was a ridiculous article and just completely missed the point of the film <laughs> yeah um, yes. well I think itself. so too but because... I thought it was really key and really interesting and intriguing the way that he didn't you know, kind of comment in in any of the dialogue on on this crisis that was occurring and, and on the people that were kind of around them. And that was really one of the most interesting things about the film to me. Yeah. And the, you know, most lasting kind of to make you kind of keep thinking. So Yeah, totally. And I think uh, I mean, I don't want to get into a spoiler conversation, but um, I love I love to spoil films because <laughs> it's the only way you can talk about them. But um, totally. the um, the yeah, I think he the ending you're clear of his point of view i think by the end or at least you're clearer mm. uh than uh, perhaps uh you were at the start of the film yeah yeah yeah, yeah. is what i'll say mm. while trying to not spoil anything but yeah very inter- really yeah it's a really interesting film and i've rewatched it too and i found it really rewarded rewatching and i love okay, his focus on the senses is mm. real he's into that stuff like the food and like i am love is very food, much but... an i am love too yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. great okay my number two and i'm struggling with these which one i should put as number one or which one i should put as number two um but i'm just going to go with number two being certain women by kelly reichardt i cannot say enough things about this film that express how important it is to me and how much i've thought about it this year I it was sort of one of the first films that I saw this year I saw it in January and I've been thinking about it ever since basically uh, it's Kelly Reichardt's latest film now Kelly Reichardt is kind of a very well respected filmmaker in America but she doesn't make films all that regularly um, and there are a number of reasons why and I think one of them is that she is a woman and as an independent filmmaker it's very hard to get funding um, and uh, I just wanted to mention that because there has been a great discussion about about being a f- woman filmmaker and especially an independent filmmaker. Well, there has been a huge discussion about um, is in studios as well, whether studios hire, hire women. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to mention that because it is important to the discussion of this film, especially because this film is about women and the um, kind of barriers that they face in society in their everyday life, even though they are professionals and completely experienced and in many cases more prepared and um, experienced than the men around them. They Mm. still face, you know, all of these barriers and all of these biases. I mean, I do think having said that as a precursor that Certain Women is just an incredible film on its own terms, like even without, you know, that kind of discussion about Kelly Reichardt. It's a beautiful, slow film that really doesn't have all that much dialogue, I suppose. Um, It's a film that really cherishes pauses, spaces and silences. It opens in silence. It's a kind of a triptych narrative. Uh, with three stories that kind of focus on four women and the the stories are broken apart 
by silences basically rather than having an intertitle saying I'm moving into the next story it just kind of is, is something that uh, the soundtrack kind of mm. fades out and that's what punctuates it mm. yeah it's beautiful yeah. I think yeah so it, it opens in silence and it opens on Laura Dern and she's a, a lawyer uh, in Montana, they're all in Montana, the, the characters, the stories are told. Um, they're adapted from short stories from by um, Miley Malloy. Uh, anyway, they're, they're really beautiful stories as well. So the first story is focused on Laura Dern. The second is on Michelle Williams and her struggles kind of with her angry teenage daughter and her husband who... Who, with whom she has a difficult relationship. The third story is Kristen Stewart and Lily Gladstone. And it's this incredibly rich portrait of two women who might be attracted to each other, but neither has the emotional capacity to express what they may or may not feel and can't read the other person because basically that's what life is like. Life is, is really difficult and it's really hard to know someone else especially if you you know as Lily Gladstone's character is is are a ranch hand in the make you know the middle of Montana and you don't get all that much contact with with other people and so I just find it's this really incredible film that really appreciates stillness landscape um, expression and also I've had this conversation with some people where they just don't get it and they don't feel connected mm, to yeah, it. Yeah, it's really divisive. Um, it's really divisive. And people are like, oh, nothing happens. She she doesn't give you enough to let you know what to feel. And I, I know exactly what these people are feeling as I'm watching it on screen, even though it's not really expressed overtly. I just somehow, um, perhaps it's lived experience, um, but I can completely connect with them. And I love that Kelly Reichardt has, has written these stories. Some of them have a lot of similarities to the Malloy short stories, which I read, um, but has presented these stories in a very almost poetic and literary way, but also very cinematic, where she doesn't have to really over-explain things and still gets her point across. Most of the time I didn't know what they were feeling, and I absolutely loved that. Okay. Because it's it, like the, with the silences and, and the often... Our faces I found it a little difficult to read at times. I just love being drawn in. Yeah, well, that, it's absolutely that too. Perhaps I was, I was, you know, sweeping in my praise <laughs> because sometimes there are times where you maybe don't know what they're feeling, and that is really key as well. Mm. Um, and especially in the um, the final part with Lily Gladstone and Kristen Stewart, it's, that's very key. Mm. You just don't know oh, yeah, what either of them are, mm. are feeling, and it's so mm. painful. Mm. Um, Anyway, that was a super important film for me cool. this year. Absolutely, loved it too. So my number one is Makoto Shinkai's Japanese anime, Your Name. Um, this, of the, all the films I saw this year, including a lot of the older films I saw, was one of the most ambitious and emotionally rich and beautifully rendered and unexpected films. I, um, it opens with, seri with a series of scenes depicting a comet falling, which then passes over this small Japanese town. Um, Your Name then becomes this film about two teenagers, Mitsua, a girl who lives in a village, and um, in, this, in the village, and a boy called Taki who lives in Tokyo, who swap bodies with no idea why or how this is happening. I mean, first this is kind of played as a sort of a frivolous comedy, but then it sh then shifts in tone, both literally and narratively, to reveal much, much deeper motives behind these switching identities and the role of the comet that appears earlier. 
Um, so what, one quality that's almost always mentioned in reviews of wide release animated films is the quality of the animation because each animated film kind of acts as a measure or a milestone of computer technology. So Zootopia depicted animals with 2.8 million individual hairs, an extraordinary detail. Um, and another really great uh, animated film this early, that released in, Aus in Australia earlier this year, even though it's a few years old, is um, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which opted for the opposite, which was hand-drawn watercolours. You, your name kind of employs this whole range of styles from photorealism in the cityscapes of Tokyo to these really subtly different styles in the village and then it shifts again in nature. And sometimes when some of the characters are remembering things, it'll pop up into a, a bubble above their heads and, and with a totally different style again. So ultimately, the film, without spoiling anything, is pretty much all about communication and the power of human connection. So your name is filled with these examples of dualism to express this. So there's nature and the city, masculine and feminine, remembering and forgetting, technology and magic, um, the spiritual and material, night and day, and then the crossover between these fields. So a lot of things happen in twilight, and then part of the comedy that happens earlier is um, people appreciating Taki's new feminine side and his ability to communicate a little better, and then Mitsuha suddenly is really good at sport and has, a, has more confidence. So um, it kind of is drawn in in a, in a way with um, similar to Miyazaki's movies, which is, feel like a modern fairy tale, like Spirited Away or Princess Mononoke. So it's also a film that can only really be told in 2016, and use, even though it uses established motives like body swapping and teenagers in love who are facing insurmountable odds, and it also kind of starts touching on the social impact of natural and man-made disasters on recent Japanese history. So it ends up being something completely new, I thought. So even though it starts as a romantic drama, it kind of peels these layers and layers of meaning and motive behind um, the reasons for this communication and this body swapping. And so it ends up becoming this much, much bigger movie, which is almost about the soul of Japan and, is, and even touches on like you know, economic situations as well as uh, these differences. We can see it. It's playing at the moment. It's still playing, isn't it? yeah, yeah. yeah. There's dubbed versions, which I would avoid, and sub versions, which are great. Cool. Yeah, probably we'll see it for the third time, I think, this weekend. Awesome. Mm. Your name, I'm definitely going to put that on my list. Mm -hmm. My number one is, um, if a top ten list reflects the year which created it, then I think my number one really can be no other film than I, Daniel Blake, Ken Loach's movie. I think it's not a perfect film, but it's a very important and timely one. And for those two reasons, that's why it gets the top spot. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes earlier this year, and I think I can see why i think it's a really well crafted narrative i watched so i watched it i've seen it twice i watched it once here and now i watched it once in new zealand and i saw it with a woman from newcastle from the north of england and we walked out and she said if you want to know how brexit happened that's the movie like that explains it and i think that's become it's a bit of a cliche we're like oh this movie explains trump this movie explains brexit but i daniel blake absolutely does it it shows i mean the system the benefit system in the uk is broken beyond repair uh, on the evidence of this film and many other cases and I think it's important and sort of this angry Ken Loach is angry and he's sort of harnessing that sort of emotional energy uh, to create I've, this was a really this is the most powerful film of the year for me too like emotionally affecting I, I think there was not a single dry eye in our audience uh, at the end and I also want to say like the most the most sort of illustrative example of how powerful this film is, I think, is that in the UK now, there are cases of people 
spray painting I, Daniel Blake, as the character does um, on their local job centres, their local uh, equivalent of Centrelink offices, letting out their frustration in the way that the main character in this film lets out his frustration. And I think there's no greater demonstration of the power of cinema in a particular way to to harness a particular mood and to to be used for political for potential political purposes in a way that it really needs to. It really, yeah, I think that says it all. And it also, it did, while I was watching it, I went, why, you know, it, it felt as if this was the only story that needed to be tell- being told at that particular time. I mm. thought every other movie that I've seen this year is just fades into insignificance compared to this when I was watching it at the time. So I think that is Yeah, well. I think so if there's one, one scene that you can carry away from 2016, it's the soup kitchen scene. Oh yeah, that's which um, which you know, I'd heard about you know months before I'd seen this film, and I was like, okay, oh, wow. I yeah. could tell it's coming up now. I can see what's oh uh, far oh my god, yeah, <laughs> it was breathtaking. It was just astonishing. Yeah, the acting is incredible. I mean, the main guy's a comedian. It's very sort of it's unpretentious acting. It's really. Oh, it's just such a it's a good thing it's not a perfect film I don't, I, I don't think mm. I mean and I do have a, some reservations about certain elements of it um, but I think overall it's importance is such that I it's there's no reason there's no other it couldn't be anything other than my number one film great yeah mm. <laughs> yeah brilliant choice my number one is one that's already been discussed on this podcast today so I won't go into it too far um, Embrace of the Serpent Shiro Guerrero's film. Um, Now, it's actually interesting that you mentioned it was mostly black and white, which it is, apart from this several-minute crazy psychedelic sequence, like very towards the very, very end. And I'm kind of wondering why that was there, and I wonder if it's some sort of link to the two kind of botanists that are are going down the Amazon are looking for this... Well, it's fictional, but in in the film it has this this quality, this plant called the Yacruna, and it's meant to have medicinal properties. Properties, and I wonder whether it was some kind of, you know, that was meant to be like, well, medicinal, but also it's uh, hallucinogenic. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hallucinogenic. And so that was really interesting that you just mentioned that. I completely forgotten it, but I'm so, I just have such a great memory of the black and white cinematography in this. Mm, now, I. I feel like the cinema that we saw it in did not do any justice to it. It looked like the digital transfer was really poor, but the. 35, it was shot on 35mm in the Amazon and I've read some stuff by the director, you know, why did you lug these huge cameras into the Amazon? Digital would have been so much easier and he just talked about the heat of the jungle and that that digital cameras can't, you know, can't stand the heat that much and that 35mm is just, you know, kind of a better format for for that and mm. and more sturdy which is which is great to hear someone, someone kind of doing that. And I also have this memory of him saying that he shot in black and white because he said that there's too many shades of green in the Amazon and they can't be fairly represented by a camera and so by using black and white he's just persisting with this idea of this mythology of the Amazon that that it's not something that can be captured and that it's something that that has to be represented via a story and this Mm. is very much Mm. a film that is a story and that that is really key to to this film working and I just love that so much I loved the score by Nascori Linares I obsessed over the score and I ended up finding it on Spotify (laughs) um, and listening to it for days after I'd seen the film so that was 
really special. And I think as well, you know, it's it's this really interesting commentary on, you know, the selfish interference of man into uh, habitat, nature, landscape, because um, there is this crazy sequence in the weird Catholic yeah, the missionary. missionary mm. yeah, yeah, which is a very interesting. Maybe that sequence was the only part of the film which I thought was maybe too much and maybe a little bit misdirected. But but it was doing you know kind of key things, just really getting the point across that that this is a this is someone's home that was destroyed mm. by white man basically. Mm. Anyway, such an incredible film, and I think I mean I put it there because it's it's unlike anything that I've ever seen, um, and. It, it's unlike anything that I would have ever expected to have seen in 2016. And it's just so unusual. And I really was yeah. not looking forward to it. Um, and then I remember I saw with you, Anders, and we were both just stunned. Yeah. 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 We yeah. both went, it was 9.30 in the morning, yeah. midweek. Yeah, we were like, <laughs> oh my God. But yeah, it, yeah. it just, you know, two hours and five minutes. It was just, you know, I'd, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. So Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. I really love that too. Just missed out my top five. Um, well, thank you very much for making it to the end of episode 17 of Cultural Capital. We will be back shortly, perhaps not um, as in the time you're expecting because various members are in various parts of the world and Skype connections can be a bit uh, sketchy yeah, we'll sometimes. Yeah, we'll see how we go. We'll try and get another app out soon. But, um, yeah, just stay tuned to our Twitter and Facebook. We can find us on Twitter at the Cult Cap Pod or on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast and just stay tuned there and you'll know when our next episode is coming yeah. out. Or you can send us an email at culturalcapitalpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, yes, and we might read it out on the next podcast. Yes, yeah. we love emails. <laughs> Great. Yes, and feel free to rate or review us. We will definitely send um, presents your way if you let us know. <laughs> Thank you.